our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 6. A number of weeks ago, we started looking at this sermon that is an abbreviated form of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to pick up with verse 35 in Luke chapter 6. Now, I'll read verse 35, but we may likely go a little bit further. But it says, But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. He shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we look into this lesson tonight, we're grateful for these truths that you have placed here that are so very instructive. Thank you for bringing my wife and I home safely to see all the sheep again. We are grateful for how good you are to all of us in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. I think all of us will admit that the preceding verses where he talks about having to deal with reproach and difficulties in life, that those things aren't easy, especially when he tells us in the middle of all of that to rejoice and to leap for joy. But having spoken so clearly to us, notice what he says now in verse 35, love your enemies. I don't think there are too many people that will tell you that's easy. In fact, if we defined an enemy, we'd have to say that's someone who's hostile toward your person, hostile toward your beliefs, hostile toward your position, probably even hostile toward your very presence. But yet God says to love them. Now, that wasn't the plan under the Old Testament. You'll remember if somebody did something wrong to you under the law, you just turned around and did something wrong to them to get even with them. But the one thing the Lord says to us now is that's not the appropriate posture to take as a follower of the Lord. So since Jesus came to fulfill the law, in fulfilling the law, he transforms the law for us who are following him. And the verse here says, love your enemies, which in the context of this sentence shows us that love is not a noun here, it's a verb. It's something you have to do. And If I were to ask you this evening, how often do you love your enemies and in what way do you love your enemies? You'd have to think about that. What does it mean to love your enemy? Well, he wants us to know that we've got to be willing to bless those that curse us. That's, that's an important thing. Uh, the devil certainly doesn't have a problem finding people who will do harm to Christians. But the scripture says if we're people of peace, then we're the children of God. But how can you be peaceful when people are trying to be hostile towards you? How do I love an enemy who has stuck a knife in the back of a relative of mine who loves Jesus, and that's the only reason they did it. How do I love my enemies when my enemies are incarcerating my church family and the people that I love? How do I love people who are boycotting the Christian businesses or may even go out of their way and tell people to shun Christians simply because of their faith? Well, the way that you love your enemies in circumstances like that is you consider what Jesus did. How did he love his enemies? 
They hated him. They despised him. They were envious of him. They were jealous of him. They conspired to murder him. But what did he do? He went to Calvary and died for him. The Bible says greater love has no man than this, than he that would lay down his life for his friends. The scripture says that for a, a, a righteous man, anybody be willing to die. But who'd be willing to die for somebody that's not good? And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples here in verse 35. Love your enemies and do good. So we don't render evil for evil as much as we would like to. We've, we've all had circumstances where people have done things to us that aren't right, but in our actions, our response should not be to render evil for evil. In fact, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, I can show you where Jesus makes some very important statements through Paul. And it says in Romans 12, verse 17, don't repay any man evil for evil, but provide things honest in the sight of all men. So if somebody is deceitful and deceptive, don't be that way towards them. If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Well, it is possible for you if you're a Christian, because the Bible says Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the Prince of Peace abides within you. And he said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves do I leave with you. He goes on here and says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, many people, when they read this verse, you can take it in one of two ways. You can say, OK, basically, that means I should just step out of the way and let people be as angry as they want to be. And I'm just not going to be a part of that. As Paul said in Ephesians, he said, give no place to the devil. But the other way to read this verse in verse 19, when it says give place unto wrath, is to not allow yourself to exhibit any wrath, but let God manifest his. See, And that's why the quotation here in verse 19 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. Now, God in his righteousness when he gets angry and he gets upset, he knows how to handle your enemies in ways that you'll never understand. And he'll do things that you never can do. And to be quite honest with you, we don't even need to understand some of the things taking place anyhow. But just by way of illustration, in Acts chapter 12, Herod killed one of the disciples of the Lord. Anybody remember that man's name? James killed James. So the scripture says the angel of the Lord smote him. See? Now the saints didn't have to do anything. God handled that. We have it in the Bible. But I guarantee you when Herod died, a lot of people didn't know why he died. It's not like there was in the newspaper an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and smote him. But we have the inspired text that tells us what happened. So sometimes for us that are having difficulties with employers, employees, neighbors, enemies. It's good to just say, Father, I'm taking my hands off of this. I belong to you. I'm in covenant with you. You're big enough to handle me. And so, Father, I'm just going to walk in love with this person despite how they're acting. I realize that's, that's a whole lot easier said than done because the ancient church was severely persecuted. Nevertheless, we're told to live this way. We don't have to like it. But we have to live this way. 
And this is what the scripture says. So notice in Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy hungers, feed him or her. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. However much you despise someone like, um, let me just pick somebody randomly that you may not be a big fan of. Somebody like Nancy Pelosi. If she was on the side of the road, you realize if she was hungry, you'd have to be willing to feed her as a Christian. Let me, let me pick another person that, that you, you may or may not like. Somebody like, uh, let's say, uh, Mitch McConnell. If he's alongside of the road and he was thirsty, you'd have to be willing to provide for him some food. Because James tells us, or John tells us, we, we should not shut up the bowels of our compassion towards people. And it can't be about their political party. It can't be about what town they're from. It should never be about how wealthy or poor they are. If you're going to heap coals of fire on their head, that means here's somebody who may be angry towards you, but yet God, by his power, through your good deeds, can melt their cold hearts. So why not bake a pie for the person that you think hates you the most? Yeah. If you think somebody hasn't spent enough time with you or hadn't been the nicest to you, you know, or, 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 or something like that, or you think somebody's trying to avoid you, make them a nice butterscotch dessert. Yeah, that, that really draws people in, see? Yeah. Okay, verse 21. So do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Have you ever met a person that's overcome with evil. I have. I've met some very, very mean people who are in church. Now, all you have to do is get a group of pastors together and they can tell you some stories about people that are mean that go to church. I'm serious. Tiffany gave me a book one time. I can't recall if she bought it or got it from somebody. And I may have told you about it. It was a book called The Devil in Pew Number 7. Is that what it was? Too? I never could. Never believe a pastor would have to deal with somebody like that in a church. And I believe it was a church in North Carolina. This pastor came there, took the church. All he wanted to do was pastor these people and preach the gospel to these folks with his family. But this one man in the church had been in charge of the church so long, didn't want that preacher there because the people were liking the preacher. And they, he, he was losing his power. So this man just started setting sticks of dynamite under the preacher's parsonage. I mean, tried to kill him on more than one occasion. How would you like the pastor, somebody like that? But yet, you know what the pastor did? Right up to the end, he loved him. He loved him. Even to the point of it bringing hurt to his family. So he wasn't overcome with evil, but that parishioner, because all he did was sit down and meditate on the power he was losing and how angry and bitter he was coming. And he was feeding on that bitterness like somebody would chew on garlic. You don't like garlic, but you chew on it long enough. Eventually, your your palate will develop an appetite for garlic. And he just fed on that. And all he wanted was bitterness. And he started trying to attack everybody that liked that preacher. Well, we've got people in the world that are like that. 
It's not easy, but Jesus says, love your enemies. Uh, years ago, when I went to the Iranian Christian Fellowship Conference over in Colorado Springs, this was right after 91, 92, somewhere in there, maybe 93, I can't remember now. But, but two Iranian pastors had just been murdered, and these were full gospel preachers, and then I think one of them was evangelical, and the sad thing about it was they had been in prison. People had petitioned for them to be let out. Then they were let out. And then just over a period of several weeks, they started finding these pastors' bodies in these parks in Iran killed. Because somebody in the government was making sure these folks were dying once they were set, set free. But what does the church have to do in circumstances like that? Still walk in love. Jesus was crucified. And you can't respond in like measure, otherwise there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of Christians left. We try to become our own militia and fight against everybody that fought against us. Only thing that's going to happen, one bullet going to take out another person. But there's something about loving your enemies that even your enemies, when they see that love, it multiplies the number of people that love Jesus. That's why the church in China keeps growing the way that it is. So verse 35, in continuing this, it tells you in Luke 6 that lend hoping for nothing again. Now, isn't that interesting that he says lend it to somebody, but don't expect them to repay. Don't expect it to come back to you. That's the best way to give and then have a good night's sleep. It really is. If, if you're going to give something away and then sit at home worried about it, it's just best not to lend it or give it to anybody at all. I've, I've found that to be. So very true. If you have a lot of tools and your tools are precious to you and your tools are expensive, then don't lend your tools to anybody if you know you're going to have a fit when it doesn't come back the way you gave it to them or it doesn't come back on time. I had a gentleman one time in one of the other fellowships. He was telling a story about his neighbors and he said that his neighbor, who's a farmer, had a tractor. Of course, they naturally have them. And the neighbor wanted to use it because he had to have it for harvest. And his stuff had fallen apart. So this friend allowed his neighbor to use his tractor. And then when he returned it, he didn't return it to the house, but he just left it out in the middle of a field somewhere. And so the owner of the tractor took an instant offense to the fact that it wasn't returned to him personally, and he didn't let him know that it had even been placed back on the property. Well, you say, what's the big deal with that? Well, they went like 25 years without talking to each other. Okay? 25 years. So one... One party got offended, and because they were offended, just decided, I'm never going to talk to them again. Live right next door to each other. See? So this is what I'm saying. When, when you lend something, don't hope for anything in return. That is to say, if you're going to go out of your way to give something to someone, then don't get upset if it doesn't come back. It's just best for you to learn to say no. Now, my dad, he was very good with that word. He's very good with it. We... When, when family would come, and he taught this to me, he said, when family comes and they want to borrow money, he said, you've got to ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, why don't they have money right now? 
Because if they don't have money right now, it's probably because they have a lot of bad habits. Or, he said, it could very well be that circumstances changed for them and they really do need some help. And you've got to weigh those decisions. So my dad said that whenever family came to him, his first answer was no. He said, no, I won't loan you $1,000. No, I won't loan you $500. But here's what I'll do. I'll give you $500. And I said, well, why in the world would you give it to him? He said, because if I give it to them, then I don't have to stand here week after week wondering why they're not returning it to me. And the more I sit here thinking about it and stewing over that, the angrier I'll get that I won't talk to them at the family gatherings. But if I just make the decision, I'm giving this to you as a gift, you can have it. I'm free. Yeah. But I learned from him, just, just say no. Yeah, just, just say no. So the scripture says, your reward then will be great. Great coming from who? From God. So your actions, which reflect your character, are going to determine what kind of rewards you receive from the Lord. And the scripture says you'll be the children of the highest because God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. So people who do not know God end up receiving the benefits of the Lord. Why? Because they're receiving the benefits of the Lord through you because you're loving them. You're loving them. They don't deserve it. They don't merit it as far as we're concerned, because of their actions, but yet God shows grace to those who are evil, who are wicked, who are malicious, who have a bad attitude, because the children of the highest are going out of their way to bless them. So I was listening to this testimony here not too long ago of a lady named Darlene Rose, and she was a missionary in Papua New Guinea back in World War II. I think she's still alive. But She talks about how as a little 20-year-old girl, she went over there to a people she didn't know to learn a language she didn't understand. She learned it. But when the war finally came on, she ended up being held captive by the Japanese and by some German allies for three years. And the torture that she went through was just absolutely unspeakable. The things that they did to a Caucasian missionary woman over there in Papua New Guinea. And the world over here had no idea that this lady and 60 or 70 other people were even in that kind of a camp. She talked about being so hungry that she would even trap the mice just to have something to eat because they were starving her to death. She talked about the torture Things they would do with their fingernails and how they would take these blunt instruments and just beat her upside her her head and her neck. And they would pound her fingers, getting her to confess to something she wasn't, which was a spy. And she said day after day, she'd return to her little terrible cell and she'd just pray and say, oh, God, how can I endure another day like this? And this went on for three years. Finally, she saw an American plane or some plane flying overhead and they dropped some stuff and just explosions start taking place. But the Americans didn't know that there were people there that were American being held captive. They thought they were just bombing an enemy camp. So she lost everything. 
everything. A whole lot of people lost their lives. But out of it all, she said, despite how they treated her, she prayed and asked God each day, God, if you're not going to deliver me, please give me the ability to love my enemies. How do you do that? See, How do you do that? In so much pain and with so much starvation. So verse 36 says, be merciful as your father also is merciful. He is. Look at all of these people in the world say they don't believe in God, but yet they breathe his air every day. Look at these wicked people on planet Earth who are doing things even this evening that we don't know anything about, but yet God allows their hearts to continue to beat. Think about the mothers that are grieving, getting ready for a funeral tomorrow because they lost a son in a drive-by shooting. Or somebody was poisoned. Or daughter was physically or sexually abused. But yet God, in all of his mercy, he still wants to see these kind of people come to know him in salvation. So that's why we're here, to love people even when they present themselves in a way that's unlovable. Now, verse 37 says, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Now, that is a very interesting sentence in that first line of verse 37. And I think now we should probably go to Matthew and look at what it says in chapter 7 to get a greater context of this. Because you've heard people say, as I've heard people say, Christians should never judge. And, and we just want to make sure that you understand that is not the proper way to interpret this. Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. So what, he, what Jesus is saying is, if you don't judge other people, then people aren't going to judge you. So that's a, that's a principle that's under Standable, and that's why most people will tell you today, don't criticize anybody else's behavior. In that way, they won't criticize your behavior. So it doesn't matter whether somebody's behavior is right or wrong, or you disagree or, or agree, just don't open your mouth and nobody say anything about how you live. Verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure of that judgment you exhibit it, it'll be measured to you again. So why do you behold the mote, see, that's in your brother's eye, but don't consider the beam that is in your own? How will you say to your brother, let me pull the mote out of your eye, and behold, the beam is in your own? You hypocrite, first cast the beam out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to cast the mote out of your brother's eye. So what the Lord is saying here is, don't apply a judgment or criticism to other people that shouldn't be equally applied to you. If I'm going to tell you don't steal, then I shouldn't be stealing. And if I'm going to tell you certain actions or activities are immoral, I shouldn't be indulging in those activities myself. But the one thing the Lord is not saying is that we should never make a judgment. Now, we can't condemn people's souls to hell. We don't know anything about what somebody's eternity is going to be like. But I can tell you, Paul said this, he that is spiritual judges all things and Jesus said on another occasion judge with the righteous judgment so when I look at the scripture and I'm talking to people about behavior that is ungodly and they say well you're judging me I say no the Bible has already judged your behavior 
And on the basis of what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost have placed in the Word of God, your behavior is wrong. I'm simply echoing what has already been stated in the Scripture. Now, you don't have to agree with what the Scripture says. But the bottom line is, here is what the text says, and this is what I base my life on. Since I live by it, I have to obey what the Scripture says. So this is why the Scripture tells you, don't judge and you won't be judged. Now, what is the difference then between judgment and condemnation? Well, condemnation is when you criticize a person to the point that there's no mercy attached to it, so they can't even recover from it. You know, in, in slang, you've, you hear people tell somebody, go to hell. Well, that's not a nice thing to say. It's not a nice thing to say at, at all, because why would you want anybody to go there? So it's certainly not language that Christians ought to ever use, even in a colloquial sense, in trying to be disrespectful to people. No, we want people to go to heaven. Well, condemnation doesn't produce any kind of hope because you're telling somebody you're bad, it's terrible, but when someone takes the time to deal with it on the basis of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're always pointing people to Calvary. We're saying there's a way out. If you look to Christ, he's the one that can bring deliverance from the grief and the shame and the burden of sin. And quite naturally, if you don't forgive, then you're not going to be forgiven. That's Mark 11. But if you do forgive, you'll reap what you've sown. Verse 8 tells us to give and it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure... With all it shall be measured to you again. So we learned in Matthew 7 that if I judge, then that's the kind of measure that's going to come back. So now I learned in verse 38, if I give, that's going to come back to me also. What am I giving? Whatever God tells me to give. If, if I give mercy, that's going to come back. If I give monetary offering, I can expect that to come back. If, if I give compassion... I should look for compassion to be returned to me. But to understand that when the Lord blesses you in return, he usually gives you more than you require. That's pressed down, shaken together and running over. That's to say that God gives you so much that he makes room for a little bit more even when your cup is full. You ever seen somebody at a gas station when they're putting gas in the car when the thing uh, it clicks, and that's the sign that it's full. Then you'll see people, they'll grab the, the back of the car, and they'll just start shaking it, you know, all that oxygen in there. You know, they're trying to shake out, get all that out, make a little bit more room for just a little bit more gas. And then they go ahead, then they pump in another dollar and 20. And then they'll shake it again. And then they'll try to squeeze in another 60 cents. Well, look, I'm telling you, we who do that, we're not crazy. We're just trying to get as much as much gas in there as possible, shaking together and running over. That's all we're doing and running over. Well, if you want God to bless you, then the scripture says the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. If a farmer wants a good harvest, don't they have to plant a lot of seed? Be kind of hard to plant two seeds. And then expect a super huge harvest 
in uh, acres and acres and acres of, of, of soil. Well, it's the same thing with us as Christians. If you want God to bless you, be a giver. If you're a giver, you bless a lot of different people. I can assure you different people in turn are going to bless you. It's good to be on the receiving end. But the Bible says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, kids don't know that. And a whole lot of adults don't know that. Some people, they, they just like the receiving part. But it's wonderful when God begins to give to you because you cannot beat God at giving. Just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Uh, missionaries that need help, bless them. Evangelists that need help, bless them. Hungry people in your family that need help, bless them. Hungry people in the church that need help, bless them. There are a lot of different ways to give, and you can do it anonymously so people won't even know. Some people are so proud that they don't want anybody to ever think that they have a need. Look, um, empty bellies have a way of telling on you. And if you've ever been around families that haven't eaten in a long time, the, the, the sounds that come from those bellies that let you know people are hungry. Oh, no, I'm not, not hungry at all. But you can hear them sitting there at the table. You know they're hungry, but they're just too proud to ask. You see somebody in tattered clothing, and you want to bless them with some shoes, some socks, a pair of pants, or something like that. You say to a parent, if you don't mind, I just want to take your kid. We just go out and just want to spoil them and shop for them a little bit. Oh, no, never have you do something like that for my kid. Well, why not? Let people bless you and learn to accept the blessings that God uses to bring into your life through people. And that's, that's, that's the good thing. So look at verse 39 then. So he spake a parable unto them. And here's what he's, he's asking. He says, can the blind lead the blind Shall they not both fall into the ditch? I would think they would. I would think they would. Now, now someone today would look at verse 39 and they think Jesus is anti-blind people. And, and he's making derogatory <laughs> remarks about, about blind people. But, but the point here is real simple. Rather than get off onto something like that, it doesn't make any sense. Just think about what he's saying. If someone who cannot see where they are going and need to be led by the hand or out in front, how are they going to get everybody behind them to where they need to go? And if you're following people who are blind to the teachings of Christ, to living for God, how in the world are they ever going to get you to heaven? How is someone going to get you to heaven when they are totally blind to the truths of the word of God? And for some people, living in the ditch is fun. If all you've known is life in the ditch, then you don't even have anything to compare it with. And if you've been blind spiritually all your life, then you don't have anything to compare with. Imagine someone who goes blind at the age of four or five, and then in their 50s and 60s, at least they have a memory of what green looks like, or different shades of blue. But imagine somebody that was born blind and has never in their lifetime been able to distinguish various shades 
colors. See? So here's somebody who was born in sin, has never come to know God, never had anybody around them that had a relationship with God. How can that person even know the difference between what's right and what's wrong and what pathway leads to God? They wouldn't know. But if this person started having a conversation with someone else who was left in their sins and, and they said, well, you know, just, you know, how, how we, if there is a God, I mean, what kind, what kind of God is he like? I mean, what, what is he? He wouldn't know how to answer. And this is why Paul, when he came to Athens, he saw that altar and the inscription said to the unknown God. Now, can you imagine offering sacrifices to a God you don't know? You don't know his name. You don't know what he's like. But yet there were people that that were doing that. So the scripture says the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. The reason Jesus is the teacher and the other ones are the disciples is because Jesus has something to teach that the disciples need to learn. And since they're in the learning position, Jesus is saying to them, Listen to what I'm teaching you, follow what I am teaching you, and apply it to your life. Well, the only way to become a master is to follow the teachings of the master. So these people who like martial arts, you know, they start off as a white belt. And then they got all these other different colors. But you've got to master certain principles then you've got to take certain tests to get up there to have a black belt and then to become a master. You've got to take all these other tests. Well, as a, as a Christian, who would you want leading you or teaching you? Would, would you want someone teaching your kids in a VBS or in Sunday school who didn't believe Jesus was the Savior? I wouldn't. But there are a lot of people let that happen. So the blind, leading the blind, they'll go into the ditch. Now it's very possible that the kids may know more than the teacher, but they hang around the teacher long enough, the teacher will get them in that ditch one way or another, drag them in there, push them in there, somehow to get them in there, put a hook in their nose. I know it's the truth because I watch how many pastors that don't believe the word of God take a church that's a good evangelical church, good Bible-believing church, but that unbelieving preacher, apostate pastor, stays there long enough where pretty soon people are asking questions. I had a lady from, from a Red Cloud Church one time, graduated from high school, was on fire for God, wanted to be full of God, just had a passion for the king. Ran off to a university, supposed to be a Christian university, and i never forget when she came back after some time, I don't know if it was one or two semesters, I just remember a conversation standing there by the pew, and she said, Pastor, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, anything. I said, uh, in our university, the, the teacher was saying that in Genesis 1, that the creation story is just a legend and it's not true. And she said, is, is that right? So my question was, what did you hear me preach? She told me what she heard me preach. But I could look at her face and tell the wheels were turning and that professor was making an impact. You say, what ended up happening? She married an atheist. See, it doesn't have to be that way, folks. 
It doesn't have to be that way at all. At some point, a person has to ask themselves, why does it seem like I've left the high road and I'm walking in a ditch? The ditch doesn't have to be preferable. Somebody has to listen to what the master is saying. So if the disciple is following after Jesus and Jesus is saying, this is what you should do, then they have to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they don't care anything about following God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23 of all of them, you folks, you shut up heaven yourselves. You're not on your way to to heaven, but you won't even let the people trying to get there go there. Close the door right in their face. Okay, a few more verses. So verse 41. Why do you behold the moat or speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't see the plank that's in your own eye? Do you think we're blind to our own faults? You know what the cure for that is? Marriage. If you, if I can tell you that right now, if you, if you don't know that you have faults, get married. Yeah, they'll they'll be reflected back to you all the time, because a a good spouse is is going to help keep their spouse humble. Yeah, that's 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 usually usually what happens. So when when Jesus is talking. To them here about the contrast of the moat and the plank, we're dealing with something that's big and something that's small, and that beam is super huge. And sometimes what is obscuring our own vision, because we cannot see what's going on in our own life and refuse to see what's going on in our own life, we then take it out on other people and we become super critical of the other folks. And there's always somebody that'll walk into a room where a lady been cleaning all day long. And when they walk in, first thing they find is the one little cobweb in the corner somewhere. And here, mama been up there wiping off the ceiling fans and vacuuming all the corners. And you can find the one little area that wasn't touched. Or all the food will be prepared, everything will be there on the plate, and it's absolutely wonderful. And then you can find the one thing that's undercooked, overcooked, barely cooked. That'll be the one thing that stands out to you. It's easy to point out other people's flaws, and some of us have become experts in... You know, investigating specs. But, you know, I don't think that's the calling that God wants for us. If, if, you, if you want to create havoc and division and discord in a house, just be very critical. That's all you have to do. Be very critical. And if you're critical enough, then pretty soon it's just going to lead to a whole lot of tension and a whole lot of fighting. He says, so what, what do you do? you got to learn to rephrase. you got to learn to rephrase. Rather than making a statement sometimes that's critical, ask a question. See, wouldn't it be better if we tried this? See, that would, that would work, I think. I think I heard John Hagee one time 
In one of his messages, he was talking about husbands creating havoc in their homes. I don't recommend anybody do this, but he said, you know, if your wife doesn't keep house real good, you you just come home and say something to her like, honey, I enjoy all the stuff that we have in here. But do we have to swing through here like Tarzan to get from one side of the room to the other? Well, if if you say that, do you think the wife's going to be happy? No, wife's not going to be happy at all. So what we learn to do as a Christian then is I should focus inwardly here. And if I'm focusing on what's wrong here, then that's likely going to keep me from spending all my time focusing on you. Yeah, because that's not going to help at all. The only thing that's going to produce is hypocrisy on the part of the critic. Because remember, you reap what you sow. So if you criticize enough, do you think you'll get some back? Any of you spouses ever criticized your husband or wife because they kept criticizing you? You don't have to raise your hand. But that's usually how, usually how it happens. And even, even with kids, if, if parents are just so, so critical, 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 everything a kid does, you give a kid a chance and they'll say what they see and what they believe. Yeah, I, I found out with a whole lot of marriage counseling that we've done that, you know, there aren't just two perspectives. There are a lot of different perspectives in what's going right and what's going wrong. There's the wife's perspective. There's the husband's perspective. Then there's what the kids see. Then there's what the friends see. Then there's what the family members see. Just a lot of different viewpoints in trying to get to the bottom of that. And at the bottom of most of it is criticism whether unfair or deserved. Look at verse 42. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me pull the moat that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam that's in your own eye? You you hypocrite. Oh, I didn't think Jesus talked like that. Oh, my goodness. You hypocrite. Cast out first the beam out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to pull the moat that is in your brother's eye. What was a hypocrite? Well, of course, the word, the second part of the word, since it's a compound form, form, hypocrite, the second part of the word is where we get our English word criticism. See? And of course, within criticism is the word judgment. This is one of the differences here in how to do it the right way and how to do it the wrong way. The ancient Greeks, because they loved theater and they loved comedies and tragedies and stuff like that, their characters didn't like to get up on stage and have people view them as they were. So certain scenes called for them to put a mask on. And they put their mask on and they put all this costume attire on. And the people out there in the audience, I mean, they they enjoyed the show, but they spent as much time trying to figure out who the actor was. Because they couldn't figure out if somebody was playing the role of a god or the role of a goddess or the role of a politician or something like that. That was all part of the fun, trying to figure out who they were and who it was that were portraying the characters. Well, the word hypocrite in ancient Greek came to represent those who were actors and actresses. Well, doesn't that make sense? Because when we call somebody a hypocrite, we're saying you're doing one thing or acting one way, but you're totally contrary in your own behavior. So you tell me I shouldn't 
lie, but you lie. You tell me I shouldn't beat my wife, but you beat your wife. You tell me that I should be a happier person, but you're not a happy person. A hypocrite. And so our, our nation, of course, is filled with that. We see it all the time on television and on radio. You look at our media and Hollywood and stuff like that. You always have these people prognosticating and, you know, preaching to people about what they shouldn't do and what Christians shouldn't believe and how we shouldn't act. I think the church has a right to declare what the Bible says, but I think the church also has a responsibility to live according to what they're preaching. Yeah, that don't make what they're preaching wrong. I'm just saying what, what needs to be declared needs to be declared. I think if, if a wealthy billionaire is going to be up preaching to everybody else about what's right, what's wrong in their behavior, I don't think they ought to be stepping out on their spouse. But we see a lot of that. Because privileged people believe the rules apply to you, but don't apply to them. And criminals... They say, I know there are laws that are on the books, but those laws aren't for people like me. Those laws are for you folks to stay in the house at night. Yeah, that, that's, that's the thing that is, is so crazy. So verse 43, then a good tree brings not forth uh, corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart is mouth speaking. So this is where we'll stop. But I'll just make a few statements about verse 43. A bad tree is not going to produce good fruit. If a tree has a disease... It is not going to produce the kind of apples and pears that are going to be pleasing to you. You just, just need to know that. And so if, if a person's heart isn't right, it's going to come out of that language, out of that conversation, out of their vocabulary, out of their behavior. You'll be able to see it. And I, and I use this, this one illustration all the time, if, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I want you to visit our house. We've got some, uh, got some fruit trees out back, and I'd like you to come see what we're growing. We're going to get ready to harvest here pretty soon. Once you see what's, what's out there on the branches. And so I come to your house, and we're walking up and down these rows of uh, trees here. And so I'm looking at some oranges, and then you say to me, well, Pastor, isn't that a beautiful pear tree? I see oranges. And then you say, well, pastor, what do you think about the pears? I say, well, they're not pears, they're oranges. And then you try to convince me that's exactly what they are, that they really are pears. Well, see, I've got to wonder now, why is your vision wrong? Or what is the reason or the cause for why you want to deceive me? This is what Jesus is saying. A corrupt man, corrupt woman, is going to bring forth corruption. They can't help themselves. You don't have to worry about trying to entrap people. Just let people live the way they are, you know. Uh, part of hypocrisy is that you live what you believe. And what you believe in hypocrisy is you're supposed to do that, not me. But I don't want you to know that I'm not living the way I'm supposed to. So I'll play the role and I'll be the character 
And folks, don't tell me people can't do it well. I've met a whole lot of functioning alcoholics. My wife knows a, a man who's a very good friend of mine, and uh, a marriage fell apart in another state because of alcohol. And I'm telling you, all the years that I knew him, went to church with him week after week, was with him all the time, it seemed like, just about every evening, never even knew he had a drinking problem. Never, even who never smelt it on them, played sports with it. Normally, with people that drink a lot, it comes out of their sweat glands. You can smell it on them when you're br- rushing, brushing up against them in a basketball game. Never smelt anything. You say, how'd you find out? The wife? The kids? They're the ones that said, Daryl, you, you just don't understand. Every Friday evening, daddy comes home from work, goes in that back room. All of his liquor, and he doesn't come out until it's time for him to go to uh, work that next Monday morning. I said, really? Had no idea. No idea. Knew all the Christian songs we knew. Knew when to lift his hands. Knew when to squeeze out a tear. Knew when to act like he loved God. But because of his lifestyle, what do you think that did to his kids? Not a one of them serving God. See? Hypocrite. Because it's one thing here in front of people, one thing here over here. Preaching in North Carolina one time, T.L. Lowry was telling a story, giving an altar call. Had a bunch of teenagers out there in this church of God. And um, he was walking down the center aisles, asking people, come, come down and, and just kneel in the altar and pray and talk to God. There's always something you can leave there at that altar and talk with God. This one young man was sitting there like this, and, and he had his, his, his legs kind of crossed or whatever. And so Brother Lowry said to him, son, why don't you go down there to the altar? God's ready to meet you there, and he'll do something wonderful for you. And that young man looked up at that, that visiting evangelist and said, go down there to that altar. He said, look down there. He said, my dad's running back and forth around that altar, hands lifted up, screaming and yelling and like he loves the Lord. And he said, no sooner than my wife, my mother and I, we get home, he's going to beat my mom and throw her all around the house and come right back here at the next revival and do the same thing again. I'm not going down there to that altar. There ain't nothing down there. See? Now, for a lot of the other people that went down was kneeling, God was meeting their needs. But for that young man, he couldn't see any help because of what he saw at home. This is what we're talking about, a corrupt tree. It's going to bring forth corrupt fruit. There's no doubt about that at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your word is clear. Your word is true. Jesus gave us some wonderful instructions in Luke chapter 6. I pray that you help all of us to live close to you. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.